Our Old Testament reading this evening is Joshua 23. Joshua 23, reading the whole chapter. This is God's very word. Now it came to pass, a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua was old, advanced in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I've divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I've cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Unless you go among these nations, these who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, as he promised you. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them and go into them and they to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed. Of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you, all have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Therefore, it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the words of my sinful lips and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. As Joshua 23 opens, many years have passed since 
since the people of Israel have come into the land and they've inherited the good land that God gave them. Joshua is old now. He knows he is old. He doesn't have much time left among the people of Israel. So before he dies, he decides to do what Moses did before him. Call all the people together. Give one last sermon. I wonder what it would have been like to hear that sermon. By this point, Joshua would have been legendary in Israel, something perhaps like George Washington was in the early years of our nation's founding, just a giant in the people's imagination. And now he's dying. It's the end of an era. He's, he's you know, one of two remaining who was actually there when the people were brought out of Egypt, saw the plagues, came through the Red Sea. He, he was with Moses, right, as his assistant all the way through the wilderness. He, he led the people into the promised land. He, he drove out these enemies of Israel. He's a giant figure in Israel's history. And now here he is at the end of his life, gathering all the people together to preach this one last sermon. I wonder what it was like to hear him. I wonder, you know, I'm sure there were men there who served under him, fought under him, fought beside him. And they're, they're, they're eager with expectation to hear what their leader will tell them this one last time. Or, or the younger generation, right, who's always kind of seen him as this, this great hero, this larger-than-life figure there, waiting to see what Joshua will say to them. You can imagine the weightiness of this moment, his last sermon. What does he preach about? What is so important that he calls all the tribes to leave their homes, make the long and difficult trip to Shiloh, to where he is, to, to hear this sermon? Right? He's not doing this for sentimental reasons. He's doing this because God has given him a burden that he has to preach to these people. And that burden is this. It's covenant faithfulness. It's his last opportunity to, to exhort Israel to be faithful to the covenant. That's, that's what this chapter is about. That's really what the whole book of Joshua is about, isn't it? It's, it's about covenant faithfulness. First, God's covenant faithfulness to his people to bring them into the promised land. And then the people's covenant faithfulness that they are supposed to show in response to God. That's, that's, the, that's the macro structure of the whole book. We saw this last time. Uh, chapters 1 through 21 are all about God's faithfulness Chapters 22, 23, 24 are about the faithfulness Israel is supposed to have in response. The end of chapter 21 sums up God's faithfulness like this. Chapter 21, 43 to 45 says, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which He'd sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that He'd sworn to their fathers, and not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. The writer could not have put God's faithfulness more emphatically than he does there at the end of chapter 21. Every single promise, he says, every single word God said has come true for you, Israel. God has been faithful. That's how chapters 1 through 21 conclude. And then the book shifts. Chapter 22, 23, 24. Now, Israel, you be faithful to your faithful God. Last time we saw chapter 22, covenant faithfulness illustrated. Now here, chapter 23, covenant faithfulness preached. 
next week, Lord willing, chapter 24, we'll see Israel promise covenant faithfulness. But here tonight, chapter 23, covenant faithfulness preached. I see two basic points in Joshua's sermon here in chapter 23. First, he commands covenant faithfulness. So he tells Israel, be faithful. And then second, he warns about the consequences of faithlessness to that covenant. So those will be our two headings this evening, the command and the consequences. So first, the command, which we see in verses 1 through 11 here, the command to keep the covenant and be faithful. Joshua starts his sermon here with a reminder of God's mighty mercy. He says this in verse 3, You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. Joshua's lead-off line is, uh, is to, to exalt before Israel the Lord, His mercy, His might, all that He's done. It wasn't, his, it wasn't Joshua's military strategy, his, his clear head in battle. It wasn't his strength of arms. It wasn't Israel's ability in war. No, Joshua says it was the Lord. From first to last, every bit of it was the Lord. He doesn't want the Israelites to take any credit for themselves or to give him any credit for this. The Lord is the only hero of the story. He's the the great warrior who brings Israel into the promised land. But that's not just the Lord's great might as a warrior for Israel that Joshua exalts here. It's the Lord's might and its its purpose, which is the sake of his people to, to do his people good. That's the focus, right? It's, it's on what God, by His power, has done for His people. You see this right here in verse 3. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done because of you, Joshua says. Israel is the apple of God's eye. She is the object of His love. She is like the, the bride, right? And God loves His bride. He delights in her. He rejoices in her. And He fights for her. This is, this is where Joshua begins as he starts this sermon. Right, He's going to be calling them to faithfulness. But, but as he starts, he starts with who God is and what God has done. He's, he's saying, remember who He is. Remember that He is the one who's fought for you because He loves you. Not because you deserved it or, or earned it or because you were faithful. Because, because He chose you and He loves you. So Joshua starts with God's past faithfulness. In verse 3. Then in verses 4 and 5, he promises future faithlessness. He says, The God who's fought for you in the past will continue to fight for you. The God who, who brought you into the land will help you finish inheriting the land. He'll give you victory in the future so that you can inherit the land fully, retain the land permanently. So we learn here from the text that even though Israel's been in the land for some time, they still have uh, much work to do. Verse 1 told us they've been in the land a long time, but there's, there's still people to drive out of the land. Each tribe has a duty to clear its own territory, right? to push out the inhabitants of the land, uh, clear them out so that they can dwell there uh, without being tempted to worship other gods. And Joshua wants the people to have confidence that the Lord will also bring this to pass. He reminds them at the end of verse 5, God has promised this too. He gives more detail about this promise 
Down in verses 9 to 10, he says, For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. He says, Israel, your efforts will be met with supernatural results. Results that only God could accomplish. One man of you putting to flight a thousand. Only God can do a thing like that. That's what God has promised. Now Joshua is about here, he's about to go on to his main point in this first part of his sermon, which is the faithfulness Israel must show God. But what I want us to see here is how before he gets there, and even as he starts to talk about that, he surrounds it with reminders of God's faithfulness and God's uh, salvation that he's worked for his people. He's grounding this command of faithfulness to them in God's grace. Because the only way Israel will be faithful is if they understand God's mighty mercy to them. And this is, this is the logic not just of the book of Joshua, but of Scripture itself as a whole, right? God saves, we respond. He blesses first, and then we obey. It can never work the other way around. Right? Think of the Ten Commandments. They don't start with a command. They start with God saying, I am the one who saved you by my grace. That's not the conclusion to the Ten Commandments. That's the, that's the introduction to them. The, the, the ground of, of every command God gives is the grace that he has shown us. You and I need to understand this, loved ones. And we need to not understand it just in our minds, but, but in our hearts and in the, the way we live our lives. My pastor used to say the default mode of the human heart is to think, I obey, therefore God blesses me. I obey, therefore God blesses me. If, I, if I'm faithful, then God will reward me. We're wired to think that way. But, but the gospel reverses that. It flips it. It says, no, no, God blesses you, therefore you can obey. The danger... Us is that as, as we read the Bible and we hear it giving us commands, as we see here tonight, this command to be faithful, that, that we take that command, we cut off the gospel roots of that command, and, and then we make it into a new law which has nothing to do with God's grace. And when we do that, brothers and sisters, we're, we're trying to put ourselves in the place of God, swap places with Him, saying, no, 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 I'll do the saving, and then, and then you can bless me. So Joshua keeps coming back to this point. We should too, brothers and sisters. It's impossible for our response to God's grace to earn God's grace. It is undeserved, right? That's what grace means, undeserved. God blesses, therefore I obey. Never flip that, brothers and sisters. We are saved with nothing to commend us by God's grace alone. By His might and mercy, He's delivered us from sin. He's delivered us from Satan. Therefore, we can obey. We deserve hell, but by grace we get heaven. Therefore, we can walk in a manner worthy. But this glorious free grace is not cheap grace, right? As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. It's rather what Bonhoeffer called costly grace. And that's what we see here in Joshua's sermon. That's his, that's his main emphasis here. The grace of God, Israel, that he's shown you needs a response. His faithfulness 
demands your faithfulness. That's what we see in verses 6 through 8, and then again in verse 11. So Joshua turns now. He's been talking about the grace of God to Israel to save them, bring them into this land, be faithful to them. And now he says, now you be faithful. We see this, as I said, verses 6 through 8, and then verse 11. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. He says you need to take courage. The, the word there means to be strong. And this is a big theme in Joshua from the very first chapter, right? God says to Joshua in, in chapter 1, be strong and very courageous. He's using the same word here. The book began, right, with this, and it's ending with this. Be strong to obey. What we see here, loved ones, is that obedience takes strength. It takes effort. Faithfulness requires effort and, 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 and endurance. When Paul compares the Christian life to a boxing match or a race or, or a battle, He's not trying to draw a romantic picture for us. He's describing what it really feels like to try to persevere in faithfulness. Faithfulness doesn't happen by accident. It's not something we can sort of accidentally fall into. Right? It takes effort and diligence on our part. And it's not something, faithfulness isn't something that happens when we need it to, right? In the hour of temptation, all at once, the, you know, no, it has to be an ongoing thing. We can't wait for temptation to come and, th- and then be faithful. We're supposed to be ready, equipped, so that when it does come, we may persevere. You know, so this, this, this strength that Joshua is commanding the people to have is a day-in, day-out thing. They need, to be, they need to be working this muscle. Right, this to be to be faithful to God's covenant. Here's how this strength is to be applied. Verse six says, Be strong to keep and to do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses. That's where this strength, you know, th- th- that's what this strength is in. It's in doing God's law, keeping it, guarding, preserving, uh, teaching God's law, and then doing it. Carrying it out, acting according to it, doing what it says. Let's not be haphazard, brothers and sisters, in how we keep God's law. Let's be diligent in it. Let's study it and give ourselves to live according to His Word and live according uh, in a way that's pleasing to Him. That's how Joshua begins. He begins with this broad... You know, keep and do God's law. But then he moves very specifically in verses 7 to 8 to talk about idolatry. In verse 7, he warns Israel against the sin of idolatry, of, of taking the gods of other nations that still live in Canaan and making them their own gods. Joshua goes so far as to tell Israel here not even to name those gods. Right? They're not supposed to take oaths in those other gods' names. They're not, supposed, they're, they're not to worship them. They're not to serve them. They're not to live their lives in any way in the light of those other gods. They're not to acknowledge that they are true gods at all. Verse 8, he puts it positively. Instead of these other gods, hold fast to the Lord, your God. Now we know the story. We know Judges comes after Joshua. And then after that, you know, Israel's record of failure. We see the foreshadowing here. We see how 
the future generations of Israel are going to fail at exactly this point of worshiping other gods, mixing the worship of the true God with the gods of these other nations. Right? They're going to run after Baal and Ashtaroth and all the others and, and seek their, their, their blessing from those gods. Idolatry is, is really the problem for Old Testament Israel. And it's, it's, it's our great struggle too. It's our great sin too. That we look away from God to other things for the safety, the security, the stability, the blessing that only God can give. We don't need, we don't need ancient Canaanite cults for that. We have idolatry uh, prevalent of our own. What are the gods of our age? Comfort, ease, health, technology, influence, money, power. And how often are we tempted to bow at these altars and take the names of these gods on our lips and live our lives in light of them and, and live our lives in service to them and, and, and see our security and our satisfaction as coming from these things. We are not even to name them, Joshua says. Don't in the smallest way participate in worshiping and serving these gods. Don't in the smallest details of your life live according to these things. Brothers and sisters, ask yourself, what is the idol my heart is tempted to worship and serve? What are the gods of, of the 21st century Western culture that I'm in that I am tempted after? What am I tempted to trust? Where do I look for security and satisfaction apart from the Lord? Then in verse 11, Joshua moves. He's been talking about idolatry. Then in verse 11, he wraps up this command of faithfulness by going for the heart. He says, verse 11, Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. This is the summary of everything he said. Love the Lord your God. This is also the root of everything he's said. This is where obedience starts, he's saying. It, it, this is where obedience starts and where it ends. Everything that we do has its origin in our hearts. And Joshua is saying, keep your heart for God alone. Love God and love Him only. And there's so much we could do to unpack this, to apply it to ourselves. Let me just draw out two points of application here from this command to love the Lord. First of all, brothers and sisters, fight for faithfulness at the level of your loves. First and foremost, fight for faithfulness at the level of your loves. At the end of the day, we love and serve, we, we, we serve uh, what we love. We worship what we love. If, 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 if we're wrestling with sin, there's an issue of love at its root. And we can't just fight sin by going after the, the tops of the weeds, snapping them off. We have to go for the root. We have to go to the, the root, which is what we love. The great... 17th century poet John Donne spoke of this, of our need for love to God to supplant every other love. In one of his sonnets, he put it like this, I except thou enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Only love for God in the sense of being loved by God can drive out love for idols. So we need to focus in our, in our fight against sin on our loves and pray that our hearts would love the Lord alone and be bound to Him alone. 
and be freed from the love for other things. That's the first thing we see here. We need to fight for faithfulness at the level of our loves. But the second thing we should see is that we also need to fight for faithfulness in loving God at the level of our habits, right? our actual actions. And this might seem to you know, not, not agree with what we just said, but it does. We, we love, we need to fight at the level of our loving, but then we need to go to our actions, and we do need to, to take a t- careful attention to where our actual habits are. The Israelites can't just pray that they would love God more, then just kind of wait passively while they continue to go to Baal's altar. No, they need to go and smash his altar, tear it down, and then go to the tabernacle and worship there at the Lord's altar. They need to change actual habits. And we see that we see this right here in the text, don't we? Joshua has been saying, focus on obeying God's commands, even as he then goes on to say, focus on loving the Lord with all your heart. It's just what our Lord himself says in John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love and obedience, right? They're, they, they're, they work together. Uh, obedience is the evidence, the expression of love. So we need to fight at the level of our loves, pray for God to change our loves, but also work at building habits that nurture love to God. Changing habits that that dull our love for God. Well, at this point, Joshua has made clear to the Israelites their obligation, and we've seen here our obligation to covenant faithfulness to the Lord and the Lord alone. And now he turns, as we turn, from the command to be faithful to the consequences of unfaithfulness. In our second heading, verses 12 through 16. What will happen if Israel fails in this? Not if they fail and repent and and trust in the Messiah to come, but if they fail and fail and fail and refuse to repent generation after generation, if they, if they go and they marry the, the remaining inhabitants of the land, start worshiping their gods, drift further away, never come back fully and completely to the Lord, well, the first consequence is the nations dwelling in the land with them won't be driven out. God won't do what he said he would for them of driving out these nations. One man won't put to flight a thousand. The other nations will persecute them, overpower them, Joshua says they'll be like thorns in their eyes. What a painful metaphor. He says they won't relent until Israel perishes and they lose the land completely. Then in verse 14, Joshua reminds Israel just how faithful God has been to do them good. It's a wonderful little interlude here in the midst of this warning he's giving them, but but then he takes this. He's just spoken of God's faithfulness, and then he says in verse 15, as faithful as God was to do you good, he'll be just as faithful to, to bring on you the covenant curses if you, if you don't uh, uh, persevere in faithfulness. Either they will keep covenant with him and find him changeless in his blessing, or they'll keep, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll keep on breaking the covenant and find him changeless in his cursing and his wrath on their sin. And then verse 16 wraps up with the most dire warning of all that culminates here. It speaks of Israel's apostasy less like a hypothetical as something that might happen in their future if they're not careful, but really as something which is going to happen. 
It's all in the context of a hypothetical. I understand that. But, but as Joshua moves further and further away from the if that he said in verse 12, he's, he's really building up more here to talk about what is going to happen. I don't think he's saying it's definitely going to happen, but I think under inspiration of the Spirit as he speaks these words, he speaks here of something which he, he knows to be likely to happen. And the result is that Israel will suffer God's wrath. They will be driven out. They will lose the inheritance. The question for us is, does this warning apply to us? The warning in the text, keep the covenant, be faithful to the Lord, trusting in in Him, keeping His covenant, or you'll be driven out of the land. Does this warning apply to us, brothers and sisters? Does this warning about this typological promised land mean something about us with regards to the eternal promised land? I think perhaps, at least maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but perhaps we don't want it to. It, it's easy to say, well, that's, that's the Old Testament. That, that, that's just the Old Testament being the Old Testament again. We don't have to take this too seriously here. Those consequences don't apply in the New Testament anymore. And we can think of theological, good theological reasons why we might say that and kind of dull the edges of the warning here. We believe in the perseverance of the saints, right? That, that we're not saved by works, we're saved by God's grace through faith, apart from works of the law. We're not saved by our faithfulness, but by Christ's faithfulness and our total dependence on that. And that's all true, wonderfully true. So how can we say that if you're not faithful to the covenant, you are also in danger of losing the inheritance? How can we say that? Well, brothers and sisters, an Old Testament saint could have asked the same question. They too were saved by grace through faith, apart from works of the law. They were saved by faith in Christ's faithfulness, not their own faithfulness. Does this mean then that this warning is just kind of for show that, that as Joshua says this, he sort of winks at the people and says, don't worry, we all know we don't have to take these sorts of warnings seriously. No, not at all. It's a real warning. And that's why we read earlier from Hebrews 3 because it's repeated there, isn't it? Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The author of the Hebrews there is giving the same warning Joshua gave here in Joshua 23. He says, we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold firm our original confidence to the end. We retain the promised inheritance, he's saying, if we hold fast our covenant faithfulness, if we're walking in faithfulness before the Lord. If we reject the Lord, turn from His covenant, make a habit of disobedience, walk in sin, give our hearts to idols, stop repenting, we should not expect an inheritance in heaven. What hope do we have, right? That's what we ask next. Brothers and sisters, we have a great hope. We have hope in Christ, right? He's the true Israel. He is the faithful one, perfectly faithful in every, you know, every single detail of the law of God. He, he followed it perfectly, loved God perfectly. Never was his heart tempted after idols. 
All his habits were perfect, were in perfect conformity to God. And, and he's, Hebrews makes much of this, and it says he's opened heaven, he's gone into the heavenly places, he's secured it for us. So that's, that's our first, that's the first thing we look to. That's, that's what we do when we read about this warning. We say, well, thank the Lord that he's provided a faithful high priest uh, who, who brings me with him into glory, into the inheritance. The second thing, though, that there's another aspect to this hope. And that's that the Holy Spirit comes, that, that the Lord Jesus gives His Spirit to make us more and more faithful in our hearts, in our habits. Jesus doesn't save us from sin's guilt without also breaking its power. As, as uh, Top Lady's hymn puts it so well, Rock of Ages, he says, Be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power. If we're, if we're trusting in Christ, united to Christ, then, then we have the Spirit within us making us able, willing to believe and obey. So does that then kind of knock the teeth out of the warning? So there's not a real warning here? Not at all. It's, it is possible, loved ones, to think that we are in Christ and that we have been saved by Christ and yet to, to fall into sin, drift away from Christ, and then prove ourselves to never have belonged to Him at all. We must take the warnings seriously. According to our confession of faith, this is one of the marks of saving faith, that we tremble at the threatenings of God's Word. So, brothers and sisters, heed the warning. Don't play games with disobedience. Take, take uh, sin and, and the consequences of sin seriously. It's not something we can take and leave at our leisure. It's, it's, it's stronger than we are apart from Christ. The warning here is real. If you don't walk in covenant faithfulness, you will not retain the promised inheritance. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, our hope is not in our faithfulness. It's in the faithfulness of Christ. And it's, it's that hope. And hanging on to that hope. And right as we started, right, the grace of God, God blesses me, therefore I obey, is resting in that that sustains and enables us to be faithful. To God's covenant. Let's pray together.